Welcome to this event at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the director of the LSE and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Michel Barnier today to the LSE in person to discuss his latest book, My Secret Brexit Diary. Michel Barnier is well known to, to many of you. Uh, he was, of course, the EU's chief negotiator for four years as the two sides, the UK and the EU, thrashed out what Brexit really meant. And during 1600 days of complex and often acrimonious negotiations, he kept a private diary, which is the subject of the book he will talk about today. Before playing this important role, Michel, Michel Barnier was a minister in the French cabinet and held many portfolios, ranging from agriculture, foreign affairs, environment, and European affairs. It feels particularly special to welcome Michel Barnier here today after a long period of holding online public events. Uh, this is the first hybrid event that we have held. And it's especially special because this is the final event in a program that we have run at the LSE called Brexit and Beyond, a program organized by our European Institute and School of Public Policy. And it's been running for five years, holding a diverse range of events around the public debate around Brexit. I remember an event that we held not so long ago with Guy Verhofstadt from the European Parliament. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, was in the audience. And I saw the entire UK press corps on the steps of the LSE. And I said, what are you all doing here? And they said to me, well, this is the only place where one can have a sensible evidence-based debate about Brexit. And so that's a great tradition that we uh, are proud of. And it feels particularly fitting that today's event will be the final event in our five-year Brexit and Beyond series. So with that, I will turn to Professor Kevin Featherstone, who is the El Fetir, uh, the Venezuela's Professor of Contemporary Greek Studies and Professor in European Politics here at the LSE, uh, and also Director of our Hellenic Observatory. Kevin, over to you. Thank you, Manish, very much indeed. And it's a great pleasure to be joining you for this uh, discussion. Before we get underway, my task is to make one or two organizational points to our audience, if I may. Many of you will be interested in giving comments via Twitter, and we look forward to uh, receiving those uh, comments. We suggest that the hashtag for today's event is quite simply hashtag LSE Brexit. And at any time during the events uh, this afternoon, you can send us your questions. Please use the Q&A facility at the bottom of your Zoom screens, and we will do our best to cover as many questions as we can. Uh, please give us your name, any affiliation you may have, and please, can I ask you to keep those questions uh, short so that we can get through as many as possible. Now, this afternoon's event is being uh, recorded, and we hope to make this available as, as a podcast, unless there are any technical uh, hiccups, and you can download that podcast, hopefully, in a few days' uh, time. So the format is that we're going to invite uh, Michel Barrier to uh, make his uh, presentation. I will then follow with some questions in the discussion, and then we'll open the event uh, to you, the audience, for the Q&A. So do please start sending us your questions, and I'll do my best to get through them. But let's begin. 
And it is a great pleasure to invite uh, Monsieur Barnier to make his presentation. Please. Many thanks, uh, Professor uh, Stone, and many thanks, dear Minus uh, Safik, for you. You are welcome. It's good to be back to London. <laughs> uh, and Minus, uh, thank you for your kind words and this uh, short presentation. But uh, you, you didn't mention one point which is important for me in my public life. It's the time I spent 10 years organizing the Winter Olympics in my region of Savoy uh, a certain number of years ago. Uh, it was 10 years for 16 days. And I think it was a good training for the Brexit. <laughs> uh, so I'm very happy to honor a long-standing uh, invitation from your side to come here in London School of Economics and engage with you, even if only virtually. Uh, so uh, good uh, evening, uh, and good afternoon to all of you uh, for your attention. Uh, and if I may, uh, also to the French student of the LSE. Uh, I'm glad to be here uh, as the negotiations are behind us. Not that the negotiations were painful. Uh, I still have fond memories of our constructive discussion with David Frost in the basement of the B. EIS Conference Center, uh, not very fun, uh, and not far from here in London. And I tell many of these good moments in my book, which I wrote every day during uh, not uh, three years, but four years and a half. Huh? Uh, but because since the end of the negotiations, I was able to look back at these four years and a half intensive years. I did it thinking of an advice that Angela Merkel gave me once. In the middle of the night, we were having difficulties on the issue of Ireland, no surprise. Uh, and she told me, you know, Michel, as a scientist, when confronted with a problem, I always take three steps back to look at the global picture. This is an advice I followed several times in this negotiation, and this is an advice I will follow in any case in my public uh, uh, life the next few months and few years in France. And let me add uh, that personally, I will miss Angela Merkel, who still stay one of the Europe's greatest leaders. So in the last few months, I tried to give meaning to my Brexit years. Let me reassure you, the meaning of Brexit is still not crystal clear to me. I hope it is clearer for British uh, citizens. The UK has effectively left the single market nine months ago. Some would say that this happened without drama that the doomsayers were wrong, that is all, all project fear. I'm not sure that this feeling is shared by Scottish salmon producers who seek to place their products in the EU supermarket shelves, by music uh, British bands 
who now need visas to tour in Europe. And I even uh, had Elton John uh, on the phone about this point, or indeed by universities faced by the declining number of applications from EU students, about uh, LSE, if I understood clearly. <laughs> For them and many others, Brexit is a loss. And even in the less impacted sector, very few people call it a win. In reality, if the loss was limited in many sectors, it is precisely because we in the EU always wanted to avoid the cliffage. And so did the current UK government. It is because we passionately negotiated a withdrawal agreement and a trade and partnership agreement to limit the damage. So even nine months later, I pain to see the meaning of Brexit. But I see, I still see clearly the meaning of our positions in these negotiations. As I often said, these positions were guided by five principles that I always had in mind since I was appointed chief negotiator in 2016. And the first point is respect. The first principle is respect. Over the last five years, I often told the story of my first vote, my very first vote as a French citizen. It was in 1972, I was 21, and there was a referendum in France about the accession to the European communities of the UK, along with Ireland, Denmark, and Norway. I was a member, I still is, I still am a member of the Gaullist party. Yes, I campaigned for the yes, because I thought that we would be stronger together. But also because I had always admired the UK, its history, its culture, and its political leaders. And to be frank, I never regretted this vote. In its uh, 47 years of membership, the UK played a key role in developing the EU project and its single market. The UK also strongly, strongly benefited from being an EU member. So, ladies and gentlemen, when 52% of voters in the UK choose to leave the EU, I personally regretted this decision but I have always respected it. And since I was appointed as the EU's chief negotiator, I've always treated the UK with respect, without any kind of aggressiveness or any spirit of revenge. It is with respect that we engaged with the negotiation designated by the UK government, four different negotiators in four years. It is with respect that we negotiated the UK's orderly withdrawal from the EU. It is with respect that we took note of the UK's choices to leave the single market and the custom union. And it is with respect that we engage in the second negotiation on the new relationship between the EU and the UK. Respect 
unity, unity. Ladies and gentlemen, we would not have concluded this negotiation without having profound respect for the EU, the UK, but we will not have succeeded in either without standing united in the EU. Unity is therefore my second principle. As the EU's chief negotiator, I had the privilege of working with a truly exceptional team. With the full trust of the European Commission, the Council, the 27 member states, and the European Parliament. But unity, unity does not fall from heaven. In particular, in difficult negotiations such as these, we had to build this trust every day. To do so, we worked hand in hand, week after week, with the elected representatives of the European Parliament, with the 27 Brexit delegates in the Council, with the ministers and members of national parliaments, the member states. We ensured an exceptionally high level of transparency in the negotiation. We clearly explained our position to all those affected, citizens, businesses, trade unions, public administrations, but also academics, think tanks, NGOs, and journalists. And we encourage a genuine public debate on Brexit and how it will affect the EU and the UK, and in particular Ireland and Northern Ireland, given the specific challenges there created by Brexit. I think that this method was the right one because it left no stone unturned individual problems were identified, analyzed, and discussed. The border in the island of Ireland, the UK sovereign bases in Cyprus, fisheries, transport, Gibraltar. Each and every serious concern of one EU country had to become the concern of the 26 others. This was the key, simply because we needed unanimity to conclude this agreement. And so the leverage of unity was unanimity. A point which was often underestimated by the British government. The unity was not just a question of a method, it was also the expression by heads of states and government of the value they attached to the European Union and in particular to the single market. The third point is responsibility. With trust comes great responsibility. This is my third principle. And our first responsibility was to negotiate an orderly UK withdrawal, if I may say, an orderly divorce, to avoid the most negative consequences of Brexit. The withdrawal agreement removes three major uncertainties. First, it safeguards for life, for life, the rights of all EU citizens living in the UK and all UK nationals living in the EU before the end of 2020, as well as those of their family members. Thanks to this, more than 6 million citizens, certainly more, can continue to live, study, and work in their respective host states with the rights of healthcare, 
pensions, and other social security benefits secured for the rest of their lives. Second, the withdrawal agreement settles all financial obligations undertaken while the UK was a member of the Union. So my line, and finally our common line, was simply that what had been decided at 28 will be paid at 28. Thanks to this, all projects and programs supported by the EU budgetary framework for 2014 until 2020 have continued as planned, with UK beneficiaries continuing to participate and receive funding until the closure of this project and programs. And third, the withdrawal agreement includes a solution to deal with a specific situation, very specific situation of Northern Ireland, where the Brexit negotiations were not just about cross-border trade and goods or the economy, but more existentially about maintaining peace and stability for the people given that Brexit would have created a border on the island of Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, finding common ground with the UK on how to achieve a solution to this problem was, as you know, not easy. But the EU was tireless in its efforts. We listened to concerns in Ireland, Northern Ireland and across the UK. We went back to the drawing board many times, many times, to find a solution that would reconcile the many different interests at play. First, with Prime Minister Theresa May, then with Boris Johnson. And I want to pay tribute also personally to the friendship and commitment to the two T-Shock I worked with, Leo Varadkar and Mihol Martin. In the end, we managed to square the cycle, avoiding the hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, preserving the whole island economy and respecting the Good Friday Belfast Agreement in all its dimensions, protecting the EU single market and all its guarantees for consumer protection, public or animal health. And finally, respecting the place of Northern Ireland as an integral part of the United Kingdom's internal market. This agreement took us two years to reach. It is a balanced and delicate compromise, in particular, as recalled recently by the Commission Vice President Maros Sefcovic, on the UK side, it agreed that EU rules and goods would remain applicable to Northern Ireland it accepted that it would mean checks and goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. On the EU side, we agreed that the UK would carry out these checks and control on our behalf, which is an unprecedented gesture. No other jurisdictions in the world had done this before. Of course, I hear those voices who still oppose the protocol. I know that the Commission is seeking solutions, pragmatic and operational solutions that work for all. I am sure such solutions will be found if all parties engage 
constructively. Ambition. Ladies and gentlemen, the withdrawal agreement settles all aspects of the UK's divorce from the EU, but we still had to agree on our future relation. For this, we needed together ambition, which is my fourth key word. As the UK refused to ex extend the transition period, it was its choice. We only had 11 months, 11 months to negotiate this future relation last year, and it was extremely short. To give you an example, our negotiation for free trade agreement with Canada or with Japan took at least five years to conclude. And they were far more narrow in scope than our negotiations with the UK. Our trade and cooperation agreement with the UK is far broader. In addition to trade, it concludes ambitious economic and social cooperation in air and road transport, energy, climate change, fisheries, or nuclear safety. We also agreed to cooperate for our citizen security, for instance, on surrender or on exchanging DNA, fingerprints on vehicle registration data, as well as criminal record information. And we agreed on common governance rules to ensure that our partnership is effective and credible in the long term. Even on trade, our agreement is unprecedented. We agreed on a free trade agreement that is ambitious and fair, zero tariff, zero quotas for all good exchanged. In addition to goods, we cover services and investment, digital trade, maritime services, intellectual property, and SMEs. At the heart of this free trade agreement are a set of new rules aimed at ensuring a modern, fairer, more sustainable trade policy. A trade policy that does not only aim to offer more choice at lower prices, but that seeks a fair treatment of workers and decent working conditions, that respects the safety and health of consumers, and that protects our environment and climate in the long term. This is what we call the level playing field, and it was particularly necessary with such a close, very close neighbor whose economy, whose economy is so interconnected with ours. Of course, this deal does not replicate the benefits of the EU single market. It brings back non-tariff barriers, which can create problems now and in the future. Of course, also, this deal could have been even broader, in particular, I regret that the UK government chose not to participate in the Erasmus student exchange program, that did not accept to include clauses on citizens' mobility and non-discrimination between all our EU nationals. All EU nationals are equal for the EU, no longer for the UK. And that, in an uncertain and unstable World, he did not wish to negotiate an agreement on foreign policy, external security, defense, or development cooperation. But it was once again to choose.
the choices of the UK. But overall, reaching such an ambitious and realistic agreement in such little time is a great achievement. Finally, Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, even with an ambitious scope, our agreement does not replicate the benefits of the EU in the, legal, in the, legal, in the, in the single market. This brings me to my fifth key word, Europe. Throughout the negotiation progress and process, we protected the EU and we protected its single market. And it worked. Contrary to what many predicted at the time of the UK government and the UK referendum, sorry, Brexit did not trigger the demise of the European Union, despite the hopes of Mr. Farage. But rather, it reawakened the realization that our unity, our single market, our common policies are what give us scale and clout on the global stage. The solidarity between our national sovereignties where it matters most is exactly what has enabled us to continue promoting our shared interests and values in this fast changing world. And this is, and in this terrible COVID crisis, which is not finished, the EU has acted with determination, for instance, by pooling the purchase of vaccines or by launching a massive common recovery and resilience fund. But let's not be complacent. We need to learn, as I wrote in my book, the lessons of Brexit, some of which probably are specific to the UK, but others are common to many other regions across Europe, in particular in my country. The feeling that Europe does not listen enough or is too distant that it does not protect the citizens or act decisively enough against the negative consequences of globalization or of the pandemic we are in. That it has let some of its industry collapse or the little to create new decent jobs. That austerity went too far in the last decade. Everywhere in Europe, we should listen to the popular feeling which is not the same that as populism. Everywhere we need to show that Europe works for its citizens. Of course, the European journey is not always easy, but by working together, we can build a Europe that protects and inspires. A Europe that Europeans will not want to leave, a Europe that allows us to be stronger together in the current world. And I, as I wrote in my book, it's very late in the day, but it's not too late. As the European continues its journey, and despite the difficulty linked to Northern Ireland, fishery or the Australian submarine contract, my hope, ladies and gentlemen, is that nobody will lose sight of our long-term common interest, simply because I do this my last sentence, when you look at all the challenges of the world, climate change, the most serious one, Afghanistan, poverty in Africa, migrations, financial instability, terrorism, 
when you look at all these challenges we are just around us and that we, we have to face, my conviction is that the UK, my conviction is that the UK and the EU have so many reasons to cooperate from now to the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Monsieur Barnier, very much indeed. Um, if this was a live uh, event in person, I think the audience would now be giving you their warm appreciation and their applause. But let's assume that this is coming virtually. <laughs> um, I've had the advantage and indeed pleasure of being able to read your, your book in advance of this uh, conversation. And you cover... Uh, I hope that everybody will read it. The London School of Economics will be making it available to every student <laughs> as a mandatory text. Many, in our many, many thanks. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed the book very much. I and didn't I think, too much. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a very important historical uh, record. And I want to try to cover many of the themes that you raise in the book, but I wonder if we could simply begin at the beginning of the Brexit uh, negotiations. Uh, you emphasize, what struck me in the book was that you emphasize at the very beginning, even before the negotiations begin, that you were- Ju July 17th. Yes, that you were surprised, you were surprised by the uh, statements of the British government, in particular, surprised by Prime Minister Theresa May with the Lancaster House speech. You mentioned that the Prime Minister appeared to be making public her red lines, her um, uh, demands, even before the negotiations actually began. And your surprise, I think, also has an academic parallel, if I may say. When we talk about bargaining and negotiation, uh, many academics would say that where there is one side, which seems to be the weaker side, seems to have no better alternative to the status quo, then that side ought to be pursuing a, a soft strategy, a consensual strategy, see, being persuasive. But you're surprised that the British government is actually pursuing a very tough stance, even perhaps an aggressive uh, stance. Now, that might have been a problem for the British government, but I wonder at the beginning whether it was a problem for yourself and the Commission being a surprise, perhaps uh, altering your preconceived expectations of the negotiations. Uh, let, let me record that uh, leaving the EU it was a choice made by majority of British citizens. And we have to respect this democratic vote. And we always respect this democratic vote. Uh, leaving the EU, the UK was not obliged to leave the single market or to leave the custom union. Oh. And remember my famous stairs, which is now a very, very famous slide, where I tried to show with my team what are today the different models of cooperation, economic cooperation with uh, uh, third countries uh, from the most integrated one, which is uh, to be part of the EU. And what I said at, at that time was clearly, and I can repeat it, that uh, the best relation with the EU will remain to be a member of the EU. Mm. 
<laughs> and the second one, the second step was to be uh, as uh, uh, Norway uh, outside of the EU, but member of the single market. And uh, step by step, uh, you can go through the statue of Turkey, a member of the Customs Union, not part of the EU, uh, to the last step, which is to be uh, uh, as Canada now or uh, Japan uh, linked by a free trade uh, uh, agreement. So the, the, the choices were open, to be frank. And to be frank also, uh, many people in the EU uh, thought that uh, uh, respected the, the, the Brexit, uh, 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 respecting the fact that the UK will leave the EU, it, it was in common interest and perhaps in the UK interest to, to remain in the single market mm. or to remain at least in uh, uh, the, the custom union. But frankly, the, this is made this uh, famous Lancaster House speeches uh, told us we want to leave everything. Uh, I know that uh, it was linked to the British political situation and a very difficult situation for her in her own majority. Where many people pushed to the hardest line, uh, but uh, we were clearly informed uh, at the very beginning of the negotiation that the line chosen by the British government by Theresa May was the, the hardest line. And so, so we, we were prepared to deliver. And, uh, and at that time, my, my strategy and my, my request, very supported by the 27 uh, head of states, was to, to, to put in place what we call the sequencing, yeah? mm. which is a key point. Uh, first, further divorce and to try to give an answer to the, all the uncertainties created by the divorce with the UK as a every divorce uh, create uncertainties, unfortunately. Um, the reason why it's lose-lose. And number two, as a second phase, to deal with uh, future relations. Yes, but at the beginning, it seemed perhaps that the British strategy was um, uh, rather uh, confusing for you, surprising uh, for you. And I noticed in the diary, uh, you make a number of comments, uh, finding it difficult to understand the British approach, the rationality of the British approach, the emotion of the British uh, approach. At one stage, uh, you refer to uh, David Frost's uh, approach to negotiations as being, quote, childish. Uh, you also talk about the British negotiation approach as being somewhat like a, a psychodrama. Uh, and you were surprised by the British playing for time. I wonder if I could turn that question around. Do you think it would be reasonable for historians in the future to say that actually this was a clever British strategy? It confused you. Uh, it caught you off guard. Uh, it um, disorientated uh, you, perhaps. Was the method in the madness, was the value in this British approach of um, confusion uh, towards the Brexit agenda? No. Um, first of all, the, the, the interest of this book, if I may, for when people who can 
try to get the time to read it and to buy it for us, uh, is uh, for me to have to have um, to, to write the, the truth at the moment of each uh, uh, event or each uh, part of the negotiation. I did not change the content of what I wrote every day. So uh, just to uh, uh, reduce the volume of what I wrote because I have too many pages, but I, I didn't change the content. So what I said about uh, one minister, this negotiator, I, it was exactly my feeling at the moment where uh, I, I, go, I went through this, this event, number one. Number two, uh, uh, it's difficult to, to give a judgment about the, the, the British line negotiation. Uh, the fact is that the, the, the two British government I have to work with uh, uh, wanted to, to deliver the Brexit mm. and to deliver the, the other Brexit, uh, our Brexit, uh, um, Brexit being Brexit, okay, it was clear. We, we had hoped that it would not uh, uh, definitive, but finally we, we understood that the, the, the British government wanted to, to, to deliver the other Brexit. So, so we, we tried to deliver this Brexit without any compromise or any risk for the single market. Yes, but... is, the point is this one. Uh, um, let me just be more precise about what I um, I think about this, this negotiation and what could be, uh, not the mistake, but the point of the, mm. of the negotiation for the UK. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, the British negotiator try very often to bypass my, myself or my team and to uh, speak directly, uh, to engage directly with the, the, each national government. And in fact, it was a, a, a losing time, to be frank. Because what they did not understand clearly, uh, perhaps until the, the end, is that I was not only the negotiator of the commission, which is usual. I was, and I used to be the negotiator of the 27 member states and uh, the European Parliament. This is the first point. The second point I mentioned in my speech uh, a few minutes ago is that uh, unanimity was the key leverage for unity. Mm. Every, everyone for all. Yes. You make, the, you make the point very, very well that the Brexit negotiations creates a unity amongst the 27. And I guess many in London were uh, surprised by this uh, unity. Uh, but I wonder, uh, you also say in the book that the British appeared to be playing for time. The clock was ticking. You're, the phrase that you mentioned at so many press conferences. Yeah, that, that, do, you, do, you think, do you think playing for time helps the British with the outcome? They, they played for time, or they played the time for the, during the first part of the negotiation for the first treaty, and in fact for the second one it was the contrary. They tried to use the time to put us in the corner, mm. and remember in June last year they decided not to prolong the transition. It was easy for us, and we were ready to prolong for one year or two years, and what happened at that time? They put the pressure on their shoulders. And you didn't feel because good. Because to be frank, uh, this uh, negotiation 
was too was so long and sometimes so disappointing for the EU leader that everybody on the EU side were were prepared to a new deal. So they put the they put the pressure on their shoulders and they were at the end they decided to to get the agreement which were prepared which was prepared by my team and by myself at uh, the very very end was the, the day of Christmas I remember. So in effect the British side didn't get anything different by playing for time. No. No because the, the line for us was very clear. No way for any kind of cherry picking. No okay. way, no way. Uh, it is one of the key points for to understand the, the, the feeling of the 27 leaders uh, and our determination without any kind of aggressivity and any kind of spirit of revenge. But the, the UK deciding to leave the EU and single market had to, to, to assume the consequences. Okay. Is the UK leaving the EU, not the contrary? Yes. So, so in any case, and I have been the commissioner for the single market huh, for five yes. years, uh, just after the, the beginning of the, the financial crisis. So, that, uh, a very, very good souvenir of that time. Uh, the, the, there is no way for us to fragilize what, what is our main asset in the global world. The, the main asset, the, the main reason why the President Biden or the Chinese president respect us. Uh, is clearly the single market, which is much more than a free free trade zone. The single market is a, a ecosystem, a global ecosystem with common standards, common rules, common uh, regulation, common um, supervision, and a common jurisdiction, which is key, which is important. Okay, um, it's a very honest diary, a very honest uh, reflection on the negotiations at different stages. And at some key points, you make comments questioning the level of preparation of the British negotiators. Uh, as you said in your introduction, you were dealing with uh, four uh, UK counterparts in uh, four years. Uh, but I noticed in the diary, uh, you questioned whether the first negotiator, David Davis, uh, appreciated the difference between being in the single market and a customs union. You also later referred to Boris Johnson as being, quote, not well prepared. You also referred to the staff at number 10, uh, and you question whether they are up to it, whether they have the technical knowledge uh, to deal with the Brexit uh, negotiations. Now, I'm a Brit, I would be interested in your um, interpretation here. Do you think the problem was at the political level or was it that somehow the Whitehall machine wasn't operating as it would normally? Uh, I just wrote in my book the facts and my feeling at the real moment. Uh, one fact is we always worked with uh, very competent and very professional high civil servants. And I want to attribute and to thank the, the high professionalism of the high civil servants of the, uh, the UK, which is not a surprise, because I work a lot with uh, British uh, civil servants in the Commission and 
uh, we have so many negotiations, in particular with uh, uh, David Cameron and, the, uh, and his government uh, when I was a commissioner for the financial services. At that time, remember, I was uh, treated as uh, the most dangerous man in Europe. Which <laughs> <laughs> is not true. Huh? Uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember this time. But also, so once again, sir, I've been always impressed, really impressed by the quality uh, and the professionalism. So the problem, but the, 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 the problem is that uh, when you you stay for four years and a half at the single and the same negotiator for the EU side, and you have four different negotiators, it creates difference. I'm interpreting that, I think, as an answer to suggest that the problem was uh, at the political level in the UK. Yes, but it was a political level for Theresa May uh, to, to, uh, to be defeated three times in, 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 yes, in, yes. in, in the House of Commons. It was a political okay. problem. Huh? So, so uh, the, 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 the specificity and the difficulty of the negotiation, it, it was so complex, so detailed. Uh, just remember that the UK left 600 international agreements leaving the EU. So very complicated. The reason why it was a, a great privilege for me to, to work with a so professional team on the EU side huh? uh, of 22 nationalities. Huh? But um, everything in, in this negotiation was technical, very precise, detailed, complex, but also always very political. Huh? Okay. Another theme which comes out of your uh, diaries is the question of trust. And at key points, you refer to uh, losing trust, particularly in the case of Northern Ireland. Uh, you say at one stage, quote, I don't trust them anymore. And you were shocked, of course, when the UK broke the withdrawal agreements on Northern Ireland. Now, this is still an ongoing controversy. And I wonder whether the passage of time has actually worked to the UK government's advantage. That is, that the UK government uh, doesn't wish to have a border in the Irish Sea. Uh, and um, therefore, it suggests, doesn't it, that it is uh, the EU which might uh, respond uh, what is the European Union going to do about this? Is the, is the response simply to put a border on Ireland, in which case it will be Brussels that will take the blame for um, the actions in terms of uh, Northern Ireland? So I wonder whether actually history will, will believe that the British government, possibly with uh, a problem of trust, whether the British government has actually um, caught you out or circumvented you or, or um, uh, tricked you, uh, as it were. That is that uh, we don't want a border in the Irish Sea. So uh, what, is the, what, what, what can the EU27 do about it? If you're going to put a border on Ireland, you take the blame. Um, number one, uh, what creates a problem in Ireland, Northern Ireland, is uh, the Brexit, nothing else. Mm. Uh, we have a very fragile situation in Ireland, but that stake is uh, once again not the trade or goods or animals, it's the peace for the people. 
So I think that everybody has to be responsible. And uh, we work in good faith. Uh, I listen to everybody, including uh, all the parties in Northern Ireland, all the parties. Uh, I know that is, uh, this protocol is sensitive. I know it is difficult to implement, but we reached an agreement on this point uh, to find a solution to many problems uh, with Mr. Johnson, mm. not, not without him, not against him. We find a solution with Mr. Johnson and his team, David Frost and some others, at that time Cummings, and uh, they know exactly what is at stake in this, in this treaty. They, know, they knew exactly because they negotiated uh, line by line, yes. sentence by sentence. Yes, yes. And this treaty is very precise. Yes. So I, I, I never spoke and I don't want to speak about the border. I, we spoke about um, clearly checks and control uh, managed by the British authorities and uh, implementing the, the, the European laws at, at, the at, at, at the limit, at the entry in uh, uh, Northern Ireland for products and animals coming from England. Um, let me just recall one point I mentioned in my book. I had the privilege uh, once to meet in my office with the DUP, the leader of the DUP, several leaders. And at that time, Mr. Dodds, Mr. Dodds, uh, was there around the table and I asked him, Mr. Dodds, do you recognize that there, there are already controls in Belfast for uh, part of the animals coming from England? And he, his answer was yes, there are controls today, before the Brexit, before the decision. But if, so, if the British government continues not to respect the withdrawal agreement. I, I don't want, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm not longer in office. The vice president of the commission is doing a great job. I trust him. He's competent. He's wise. He's working in the name of the commission, and the commission is working in the name of the 27 member states. I think just one point. Everybody has to be very careful. Very careful. And I've been always careful not to put any kind of aggressivity, ideology, rhetoric in that issue of Northern Ireland, because I know it is very sensitive. I tried to find, and I think we found, operational solutions, operational answers to the problem created by the British. Okay. That was my line, and I hope that in the next uh, few weeks or few months, everybody on both sides will be responsible, because this situation is very serious, very fragile. You know that uh, uh, we are worried and we, we follow the situation on the EU side, uh, on the island of Ireland, and also on the US side. Yeah? Okay. The last question from me. I want to look to the future and I want to think yes, about me too. Michel Barnier <laughs> in, the, in the future. Of course, there is much uh, speculation about your uh, political uh, future. And some of the reviews in the UK of your book have uh, highlighted uh, the fact that uh, you took a particular stance in relation to Brexit, and then domestically in France in recent times, you've uh, made comments which seem to be uh, rather at a different, going in a different direction. In other words, 
people say that your recent uh, speeches saying there should be increased immigration control uh, for France, that France should, quote, take back its legal sovereignty by distancing itself from the European Court of Justice and the European Court of uh, Human Rights. Uh, I think uh, in recent times, your friend Nigel Farage uh, said this seemed to be like taking back control. Uh, I've never had nothing to in common with Mr. Farage, and it will be the case in the future, never. <laughs> uh, because Mr. Farage cam cam campaigned and spoke about something else. He spoke and he campaigned against the freedom of movement in Europe. And your concern and, is with migration from outside. And my concern is about how to better control in each member states together and uh, for, for itself, for each nation in Europe, to the migration coming from outside of the EU. I never want to put in risk and to put in, in question the freedom of movement. In, in, in the EU and for my country, never. I never want my, my country leaving the EU, never. I am, to, to be frank, I never change. I am a, I am a European in addition to be a patriot. I'm Gaullist and European. For the very long time when I was involved in politics, a very, very long time ago, when I was 15, and I was in, the, in my uh, uh, college. So, so I never change. I'm Gaullist and not a federalist. Uh, it all my line has been very clear. And uh, if you look at this book, not, not only look at this book, but read this book as you read, but thank you. The, the very first chapter is called uh, A Warning. Yes. A warning. No, I and, and what I what I'm doing today in the French politics, I don't want to make uh, any politics about France uh, abroad. Uh, but what I'm doing today, what I'm saying, exactly what I, I wrote in my book, drawing the lessons. And if uh, somebody in Brussels say, we have nothing to change, uh, no lessons to draw, uh, everything is perfect, uh, it is not uh, the, right, the right answer. Okay. We have to draw the lessons. Let me now then go to our audience with the questions. There are many questions coming in, but let me um, uh, refer to them uh, directly. Um, one question was, if you became... From, 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 from who is this question? The questions are coming from those people who are watching this. You don't, you don't know the name. Yeah, yes, yes. yes uh, I have be, the uh, could be, names in front of me. It would be fair to give the name of these people. It would indeed. It may be, it may be technologically challenging. <laughs> uh, I will do that in a moment. But the, the first question, I think, has to be anonymous. And the first question came from uh, someone who wanted to ask that if you became French president, would you welcome back the UK into the European Union and under what conditions? But, but uh, 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 in any case, the door is open. The door is open and will remain open. Uh, so uh, my answer is very clear and very simple. Uh, so... Uh, uh, but it will be the choice, the sovereign choice of the British people and the British government. Thank you. Um, oh gosh, these are jumping around, uh, the questions. Uh, apologies, let me just give one second to hear. Um, 
this is not, uh, this is uh, not working quite so easily. But there was also a question in terms of the um, Northern Ireland Protocol, going back to that. What would be your expectation? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? Um, a very famous uh, European statesman, uh, which was uh, who was at the very beginning uh, one of the father, the father of the EU, Jean Monnet, uh, uh, was asked uh, once, uh, Mister uh, Mister Monnet, are you optimistic or pessimistic? <laughs> and uh, his answer. Uh, was at that time, and my answer today uh, is uh, I'm not optimistic, I'm not pessimistic, I'm just determined. Uh, uh, I think that the EU has to be determined, just uh, asking to the UK government to respect its signature and to be careful. So uh, uh, this situation is fragile, this situation is very serious, and we have to be very, very careful on both sides. Dalton Reed asks the question, if Scotland was to become an independent nation, would it be welcomed back in the European Union? No. Um, I was very often uh, asked about uh, Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland, but I don't want, frankly speaking, I don't want today, uh, and I needed, I never wanted to, to interfere and to intervene in the national public debate will be for the Scottish people, for the Irish people to decide. And I don't want to, I don't want to comment at one time to, to take the floor on the internal and domestic issue of UK. Never. Okay. Matthew Lee asks the question, you worked with three Brexit secretaries, David Davis, Dominic Raab, and Steve Barclay. Who did you get along with the best? But uh, um, they did not stay uh, for the, the same time. Huh? Uh, David Davis for a longer time, uh, uh, Rob for just a few months, for five months, and the uh, Barclay uh, one year. So, so there are different personalities. They have their character. They are competent and engaged people in in the UK government and the UK policy. Uh, um, I, I wrote what, I, what was my feeling at that time for each. It was not so easy. Huh? Uh, <clears throat> what, what, what was a surprise for me, it just uh, because of my involvement in politics in France, uh, they, they, they were always very uh, uh, willing to, to, to make reference to General de Gaulle. Uh, <laughs> and I was very moved and very... Uh, uh, very happy for this reference. Uh, I'm not sure they were always sincere, but but, uh, but I was very happy for this reference from uh, Steve Barclay and uh, for David Frost. Uh, so so what I know from the General de Gaulle, say it was not de uh, Gaulle was never a nationalist. He was a national. It is different, and for him France will be strong, being open and solidaire. And uh, uh, this is my, my, my reference, my, my, my own reference. Perhaps we might be able to come back to uh, General de Gaulle. But uh, Ivan Moore asked the question that millions of UK citizens 
have had their EU rights taken away from them without their consent. What do you think about Guy Hofstadt's idea of European associated citizenship for UK citizens who want to keep their link with Europe? Uh, just a point about these questions. Uh, the UK citizens uh, uh, have lost their rights because of the Brexit. Mm. Huh? Nothing else. Huh? Because of the Brexit, because of the democratic vote of 52% of the British citizens. So we have a very, had a very good friendship and, and, and we had a very good relation of work with the Giffey Rostat along the first negotiation for the for, for the withdrawal for the withdrawal agreement, what, what I called the institutional and political Brexit, but uh, it was legally impossible to give this statute because uh, immediately if we give the statute, uh, we will oblige to to give the same statute for citizens for other third countries, and it was impossible. You know that the European citizens is coming come in addition to the national mm. citizens. And to, to get this European citizenship, you have to be a citizen of Europe through your country. If your country is not a part of the of the EU, uh, the EU, you cannot get in addition the, the European citizenship. Anil Patel uh, asks, what are the three things that Monsieur Barnier would have done differently if you had been the chief UK negotiator? It could be a, a good scenario for, for a movie, yeah? <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, uh, no, I probably the three points are uh, what uh, the, the, the ones are, the, the point I mentioned a few few minutes ago, uh, previous previous questions. Uh, uh, they, they underestimate uh, the unity and the reason of the unity. Uh, they lost. Uh, they, have, they have lost a lot, a lot too much time to try to contravene or bypass my team, and it was a very lost of time. Uh, and uh, uh, perhaps I would have given much more time for the second negotiation. This is the three points I mentioned a few minutes ago. Several people have asked a question on the same theme. Uh, when the Brexit referendum took place and the, then the results, uh, there were fears that other European countries may uh, be persuaded to follow uh, Brexit. And the question is coming in from our audience is whether you think Brexit has now uh, killed off Euroscepticism or whether it has suppressed it on a temporary basis. No, I think we have to be careful. I think you are here. So I think the, 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 if, if this negotiation had merit or uh, something which would be useful, is uh, thanks to the transparency we put in place at the very beginning. Just we have to remember that uh, this transparency has been very unusual. You know? We said everything, the 27 member states, parliament, the national parliaments, 
trade unions, business community in Europe. We said every single negotiation, every day, to everybody at the same time. That was the key method I put in place thanks to the support of uh, Jean-Claude Juncker uh, at the very, very beginning. And it was the first reason of the unity because this method, transparency, saying everything to everybody, every day and everything to everybody at the same time, has been the key and the reason of the trust uh, towards the team of negotiation and the negotiator. Uh, so, so to keep but, but do you think that um, European views of Brexit have meant that... So, so my point is just to tell you that thanks to the debate, this, thanks to this transparency and the debate everywhere, in fact, we have uh, made a kind of co-building of the negotiation with the member states. And uh, all along this negotiation, we, we built a kind of a pedagogy of the negotiation, the, pe the, the pedagogy of the Brexit, the pedagogy of what happened when you leave the EU. Mm. Perhaps it could be, it could have been useful to do that in the UK before the referendum. Huh? <laughs> but uh, but we, have, we have built this negotiation and it was a, a consequences of the transparency as a, a real, a real time of, of pedagogy. When I spoke about pedagogy, this LSE uh, strong and, and, and famous university, you know what pedagogy means, but we have made a pedagogy of what, what means to leave, what means leaving the, the, the UN single market. So the reason why, for instance, uh, Mrs. Le Pen in my country uh, do not longer speak about uh, leaving the EU, leaving the the, the, the single market, uh, uh, the single currency, uh, okay. and the euro, the euro. But once again, we have to be careful because uh, the the popular feeling is still there. Okay. And I can I can tell you that uh, uh, the, the the Brexit was uh, I don't know if it's correct in English, improbable, improbable, improbable. Try to get a free English lesson from you. Huh? Uh, and improbable. Uh, be careful that improbable situation can be uh, real, 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 real situations. So we have to be careful. Okay. Sarah Collins, who is a journalist with the Irish Independent newspaper, uh, asks uh, What do you make of the shortages of truck drivers, fuel, and some food in the UK? Are these mainly Brexit related? And could they have been avoided? Hmm. Uh, no, I, I look. I look at the press. I look at the situation, which is difficult. I don't want to give any lessons. Uh, uh, I don't want to give any lessons. Uh, we, we know that the current situation, which is difficult for the shortage and, and, and some other issue, is linked. Uh, there is not a single answer to these questions. The answer is linked to the COVID crisis, clearly, everywhere. Uh, the, second, the second point is linked to the, 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 the price of energy everywhere. Uh, the, the, we, we face problems everywhere for the raw materials. Uh, in all the industry in Europe. And finally, uh, part of the answer is linked effectively to the 
consequences of the Brexit, because the UK choose 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 to to leave the the, the, the freedom movement to end the, to end the freedom movement, and it's it's clearly linked to the the, the truck drivers and, and some others, uh, and and first in addition to the freedom movement, the the, the UK choose to leave uh, the single market. That means that. The, 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 the UK decided to rebuild, to rebuild for the very first time, uh, non-type non barriers between the EU and the UK. It is the direct and mechanical consequence of the Brexit. Okay. There are several questions coming about the City of London and financial services. Mm -hmm. A question from Alan Dundon uh, is typical. Uh, with no effective agreement reached on financial services, what do you think the future for the City of London is? Uh, the UK is very dependent on financial services. Can it regain a leading global position? Would it need to resort to a Singapore on Thames model? Uh, we are informed on the EU side about these threats or decided to create a, a Singapore in, uh, in terms of, uh, we will see. Uh, and uh, if it is the case, uh, this will have consequences. And look at the treaty itself. Uh, we have put in this treaty on both sides, reciprocal tools to avoid uh, 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 fragilize the, what we call the, uh, the level playing field. Huh? So, so I, frankly speaking, I hope uh, that this line will not be the line of the, of the British government, because it could be put into risk uh, many parts of the, of the agreement. Uh, coming back to the city of London, I wish the best. To the city. I work a lot with the city of London when I was a commissioner in charge of the financial services. We work a lot to rebuild the architectural regulation after the crisis and to draw the lesson of the crisis. We have proposed 41 uh, new regulations. And to be frank, except two of them, uh, we, 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 we succeed to have a consensus between the 28, including the UK, except the short, the short selling regulations and the bonuses regulations. But for the 39 others, we, we, we built uh, with uh, uh, the, the Minister of Finance of the UK and the government of the UK, we built a consensus with uh, all the 27 others. So, so uh, I work a lot with the city, but clearly the Brexit has consequences, in particular for the UK to lose the, the, the financial passport. So, 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 so but, and it is not a, a question of revenge or, uh, or aggressivity. What was at stake during all the crisis, or the financial crisis, was to rebuild our financial stability and to rebuild a fair and correct regulation and a fair and correct supervision, thanks to the ECB. So uh, there is no way, no way to take any risk vis-à-vis -vis this financial stability, which is the financial stability of the uh, EU markets and the Eurozone is the, 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 the ground, the ground on, on which we have to, to build the new, the new growth. There's no way to take, so uh, the, the, the way 
to work with the cities who could be, could be, uh, and would be uh, what we call the uh, equivalences, huh? specific equivalences giving, given by each side, uh, and can be drawn, can be given and withdrawn unilaterally by each side. But if I may say a personal, a personal word at this point, uh, to go on that line, we need trust between us. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure to. It's finished. <laughs> We're coming to the end. I'm about to pass. I'm to, sorry for that. I'm about to pass to Vinush uh, uh, as director of the LSC to conclude matters. But uh, can I say thank you very much? Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, you know, many people would say that one of the most important aspects of the European project is about peace. That it was about mm. eliminating conflict in Europe. And I think one achievement that we should note is that one of the most contentious negotiations ever to take place among European states happened without any bloodshed. You know, I have a colleague who worked on in the Commission for many years and on European affairs, and he said the whole point of the European Union is that we, we fight about fishing quotas <laughs> instead of killing each other. And this long four and a half year negotiation over Brexit happened without killing each other. It was conducted in a civilized manner, difficult, but civilized. Uh, and, and I think that's an incredibly important legacy of Europe uh, and, and something worth noting. I also wanted to thank Michel Barnier for giving us a first draft of history. And at a very important moment in the history of the UK and the European Union. And you've done future historians of service. And it's incredibly impressive that you managed to actually conduct these negotiations and keep notes at such detail throughout them. Through the night. Through the night. You were a man of little sleep, I think. Um, so thank you for doing that. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for conducting the questions. I also wanted to thank colleagues uh, at the European Institute, Professor Tony Travers and at the School of Public Policy for the exceptional work they've done over these last five years of running this series of events on Brexit at the LSE. And thank Michelle Barnier for taking the time to do this closing event for us. I also just wanted to mention, finally, that the LSE's European Institute is celebrating its 30th anniversary and we will be hosting a series of events over the coming year to celebrate our long-standing links to Europe and as a place where debates about Europe happen and world-class research about Europe will always continue to happen. So thank you again, Michel Barnier. Let me just tell you a few words. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you to all of you for uh, following this debate. I hope it was useful for you. Before reading my book, uh, uh, just just one point on the word you used: civilized manners. Mm -hmm. I always respect uh, my counterpart, and there is many reasons for this respect. Uh, I always had a real admiration for the UK for a long time. The reason why I voted for my very first vote for the accession of the UK, uh, lots of respect for uh, lots of respect for many. Uh, statesmen and for the Queen and for for the, the culture, the the the, the global the, the, the global uh, um, 
capacity of the UK. Even if I, to be frank, um, do not do not understand why, uh, what what prevented the UK to be a global Britain, being inside the EU. I, I, I do not I do not understand. Nobody uh, prevented Germany to be a global Germany, being part of the EU, being part of the of the, the eurozone. So it is the, for the UK to to manage this question. But I I have a lot of admiration, a lot of respect. Uh, civilized manner, as I said, uh, means also respecting uh, its signature. And, and it is a point, the key point of the trust for the future. I don't know yet what will be my role in France, but I will keep the same feeling. The trust is the key for the future relation between EU and France, between between UK and France and be, between UK and, and Europe and the, the, the trust the trust is key okay, great. thank you very much thank you Michelle thank you. and thank you to our audience for joining us uh, it's been a pleasure and please do join us again for future LSE public events <laughs>